verse 16 and 17, and then in the New Testament, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. First and second Kings and first and second Chronicles chronicle the life of the kings in Israel and Judah. And so we're looking at first Chronicles 17 today, which was just after Nathan had told David that he was going to have a son that was going to build a temple. And that was Solomon, who was going to build the great temple in the Old Testament. So let's stand together as we read God's word. First Chronicles seventeen sixteen. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And this was a small thing in your eyes, O God. You have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come, and you have shown me future generations, O Lord God. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, right after the, the Hall of Fame, all the Old Testament saints mentioned in Hebrews 11, the writer of Hebrews in 12, verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. At this point, we'll dismiss the kindergarten and first graders. And I would just say, as we walk through this uh, life of John Newton, probably the most helpful thing for you to do is just to sit and listen 
and not be uh, trying to take a note or something of a quote. If there's something that you hear, I'll have the sermon text available online and you can just get the quotes off of that. Or all the quotes are in the two books that I read about John Newton that you see on your handout with different quotes about his life. So uh, let's just sit back and listen and uh, be shaped by the life of John Newton today. On January 1st in 1773, John Newton stood in a pulpit in a city called Olney, England. And he delivered a sermon based on the text that we read today, 1 Chronicles 17. And these are the words of introduction that John Newton himself gave on that particular day. The words of King David lead us to a consideration of past mercies and future hopes and intimate the frame of mind which becomes us when we contemplate what the Lord has done for us. Let me say that again. These words of King David, the ones in First Chronicles that we read, they lead us to two things, a consideration of past mercies, secondly, future hopes, and finally, it creates an intimate frame of mind which becomes us when we contemplate what the Lord has done for us. So when we see what God has done in our lives, when we grasp God's future, and this is again from Newton's own sermon, oh, that crown, that kingdom, that eternal weight of glory, we are traveling home to God. We shall soon see Jesus and never complain of sin or sorrow or temptation or desertion anymore. And when you, when you, cra- when you, when you grasp the past mercies of God, when you have a, a good understanding about the future of those who have trusted in Christ, then you have this intimate understanding, you have this intimate relationship with God that keeps you moving forward in this life. I found this very interesting in a diary on that same day that he gave this sermon. Newton wrote this. I preached this, I preached this forenoon from 1 Chronicles 17. Hope I was enabled to speak with some liberty, but found my own heart sadly unaffected. Isn't that interesting? Here he had preached this sermon, and what he was hoping there was liberty for, it was the people could see the past mercies and the future hopes, but himself, he felt unaffected. That was particularly helpful as a pastor. Sometimes that happens in the pulpit. Well, as Newton's frequent custom, he was a, used to writing a hymn uh, for certain sermons, and that hymn would sort of drive home the point at which he was trying to make in his particular sermon. And this idea of writing hymns at this particular time was not really well received. The Church of England at that point didn't appreciate people trying to write hymns, but Newton found it particularly helpful for himself in memorizing these great truths. And so he wrote a hymn that day called Faith's Review and Expectation. Faith's Review and Expectation. And that is the hymn now retitled that we know as Amazing Grace. So today we celebrate Reformation Sunday 
and we take a time to pause, really to try to be encouraged by the life of somebody who's gone before us. As, as it said in Hebrews, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Those aren't just people in our lives right now. It's, it's people in history that we can learn from and glean things from. And I hope that you'll be encouraged by looking at the very broken and the very wretched life of John Newton. So that you would appreciate the the level at which grace really flows down to. No one in here will find themselves in a worse condition than John Newton. And in some sense, we're all in the same condition as sinners. But it's just encouraging to see how God saved a wretch like John Newton. And then we can sing the same thing. He saved a wretch like me. Now this hymn The most popular of all hymns is sung, by somebody's estimation, 10 million times publicly every year. Well, as we thumb through this biography in Newton's life, I want to look really look at three different things. I want us to get a good scent. I want us to take a a good, deep breath on just how low and wretched Newton's life had become prior to his conversion, which will help us appreciate God's amazing grace. In the book by uh, Aiken, you'll see listed in your outline, uh, Philip Yancey writes this forward, and I love this line, Grace, like water, always flows downward to the lowest point. Grace always has about it the scent of scandal. You know, grace never has the scent of deserving. It always has the scent of scandal about it in some way. So we want to look at Newton's life. We want to look at his what I'm going to call his complicated conversion. And finally, uh, 18 years after Newton's encounter with God's mercy, he becomes a pastor in the Church of England. And for 16 years, he's in a church called Olney. And then he finishes his uh, ministry in a church in London. So I want to look at God's grace in Newton's Ministry, his low estate, his complicated conversion, and then the grace that exemplified itself in Newton's ministry. First, let's look at Newton's life. John Newton was born in July 26, 1725. Just to put some sort of time context on that, his contemporaries were John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, George Frederick Handel, who wrote Handel's Messiah. William Wilberforce, William Carey, the great missionary to India, Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer in America, his life, John Newton's, pretty much mirrors in terms of time the life of George Washington. So that gives you some sense of where John Newton is on the timeline. He was born to an irreligious seafaring captain of a ship. His name also was John Newton, which is where John got his name. And this is what Newton said about his own father. I am persuaded he loved me, but he seemed not willing that I should know about it. I was with him in a state of fear and bondage. So Newton did spend a lot of time around his dad. He eventually went on a ship with his dad. But you can see the sense that he had of just fear and not really understanding what Newton's father meant. Elizabeth, his mother, was a Christian, very highly devoted to her faith and very devoted to her only son and especially his religious training. 
Newton says this, I have been told that from my birth, my mother had in her mind devoted me to ministry. And then in his biography, Newton, in later life, thanked his mother for storing in his mind, quote, many valuable pieces and chapters and portions of scripture and catechisms and hymns and poems. His feats of memory included knowing by heart many of the answers to the questions in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So you can see that, that Newton here is being influenced and he's memorizing large sums of information. And although Elizabeth's influence was profound, it was short-lived because she died of tuberculosis just before Newton's eighth birthday. Aiken says this, The spiritual lessons the boy had learned at his mother's knee were never forgotten. They became the foundation for Newton's own eventual conversion and Christian commitment. So I hope just in this little brief biography of the beginning of his life, it's an encouragement to those here who have young children to really ground them in the faith, to really understand the amount that they can comprehend so that when the Holy Spirit falls into their life at some age, there's really some wood there to burn up. And so that's what we're doing in our children's lives. We're trying to build a fire so that when God comes in, there's really something there to consume. And I hope that that those who are here, particularly who are struggling as a single parent and maybe particularly as a mom, as the one who's primarily giving your spiritual influence in your family, that you would not give up, that you wouldn't lose hope, that you continue to give in to the life of your child. Soon after Elizabeth's death, John Sr. remarried, sent his son off to boarding school. John stayed there for three years, dropped out at the age of 11, and never had any other formal training the rest of his life, theological or otherwise. At age 11, Newton joined a ship that his dad was captaining. He went to Spain, and for the next seven years, Newton spent time on different ships that his dad was captaining and sometime in England, and this is what he says, On those ships I learned how to drink, blaspheme, and I began making large strides towards total apostasy from God, from age 11 to age 18. At age 18, two important events take place. First, John falls desperately in love with a girl named Polly Catlett. Polly Catlett is a friend of their family. They knew the families together. But John one day is sort of wandering down a path looking for a place to stay and he realizes the catlets don't live very far away. So he comes upon the door and Polly Catlett opens the door. And John at 18 looks at Polly who's 13 and falls desperately in love almost on the spot. This is what he says. Almost at first sight of this girl I felt an affection for her that I, that never abated. I was overcome by a violent and commanding passion, a dark fire locked up in my breast in a degree that equaled all the writers of romance had imagined. Don't you want your husband to, you know, take that out and say, you know, this is the quote you need to memorize and you you can say it to me at some point? Imagine that. Even after uh, his own conversion and his marriage, and Newton often sort of wondered aloud in his journals whether his love for his wife was, could even be considered idolatry. His passion for her was so great. Well, 
That was one of the big events that took place when he was 18. Another one was when he was visiting Polly at some point, when he was supposed to be on a ship, he found himself wandering around town, and he got caught wandering around this town by a press gang. A press gang is a group of men who would be sent out by the Royal Navy, and they would walk around town, and they would look for young men who they think could be sailors. And they impressed you into service. And it really wasn't anything more than slavery. Once you were qualified as, as able, they put you in shackles and they shipped you off on a boat. And you, that's what you did. There wasn't really any getting out of it. And so Newton, having spent a lot of times on ship, was a very valuable find by the press gang. And he spent time now aboard a naval ship called the Harwich. Newton did try to escape the Harwich at one point. He got leave to go to shore, and he decided to walk away from the ship totally. He was caught, he was publicly flogged, and he was demoted in rank. Newton spent the rest of his time on the Harwich really seething with anger and frustration at his circumstances and particularly had a very difficult relationship with the captain, who's the one who had him flogged. And this is what Newton says about that time. My pride suggested that I had been grossly injured, and this wrought upon my wicked heart, that I actually formed designs against his life, and that was one of the reasons which made me willing to prolong my own. I hated this captain so much that even though I wanted to throw myself overboard and in my own life, I wanted to make sure I stayed alive so I could see that this captain was going to be put to death in some way. It was aboard the Harwich that Newton said this, I became exceedingly vile. I not only sinned with a high hand myself, but made it my study to tempt and seduce others upon every occasion. I think the saddest recall of one of those occasions is a man named Job Lewis. Newton had been aboard the Harwich and a young man comes aboard to be a sailor. His name is Job Lewis. Joe Lewis, Job Lewis, by his description, was a clean living young man of pure faith and keen discipline. But by the time Newton departed the ship, Lewis had been, in his own words, deconverted. Newton made it a practice to find young men who were maybe like himself, keen in their discipline, understanding the faith, and then he would try to deconstruct that so that they would be deconverted. And he accomplished that in the life of Job Lewis. Very interestingly enough, after after Newton's conversion, he's on another ship, and you know who he runs into eight years later? He runs into Job Lewis. And now the roles are reversed. Newton here is a Christian He's been converted, and he's watching the life of Job Lewis, who's just totally, totally lost it. And Newton feels terrible about what has happened because he blames himself for what has happened to Lewis. And so Newton actually invites Lewis to be a passenger on his ship. Newton was captaining the ship, and he said, Well, Lewis, you come aboard with me. And the hope was that if Lewis came aboard Newton's ship, then... Newton could have an influence on Job Lewis's life. This is what Lewis, or this is what Newton said about Lewis. He quickly became the passenger 
from hell. Lewis blasphemed, swore foul oaths, stirred up trouble among the crew. Eventually, Newton got rid of Lewis. As soon as Lewis left the ship, he began to indulge in every kind of vice. He caught a fever. Three weeks later, after Lewis's departure, it was reported back to Newton that Lewis died in rage and despair, screaming out at his death, I'm going to hell. And the weight of that responsibility never really left John Newton for the rest of his life. Well, back on the Harwich, Newton's behavior had become finally so disruptive itself, the captain traded him off the ship, traded him for some different sailors, and Newton got traded to a merchant ship sailing to Africa. And as he began to row away from the naval ship, the Harwich, to the merchant ship, this is what Newton said to himself, now free from the discipline of the Royal Navy, I might be as, ab- be as abandoned as I pleased without control. Once on the merchant ship, uh, and that once the merchant ship arrived in Africa, Newton was quickly sucked in by the wealth and the freedom that Africa put out before this young man, primarily available to those who would begin to trade human lives. Newton was hired off the the trade ship and hired by a guy named Amos Clow. Clow treated Newton like a slave. In fact, Newton's uh, situation became so desperate that uh, some of the slaves who were being caught began to feed Newton some of their own food so that Newton could stay alive, and they felt so sorry for him. Eventually, Newton managed to be hired by another slave trader, became a business partner in what was called a trader's factory. These factories were built just off the coastline of Africa. They were concrete pens with sharp glass on the top so nobody could escape. The pens held men, women, children captured from the inland. And as the merchant ships crawled up and down the coast of Africa looking for people in these pens, Newton would make a transaction for them. Once the money had exchanged hands, all the men, women, and children were branded, shackled, stacked into merchant ships, some 300 to a ship, beginning their passage at a 10 to 20% loss of human cargo, across the Atlantic to America and Europe in order to sell black Africans to white Americans and Europeans. Newton, saying this while I lived in Africa, we lived as we pleased. Business flourished. Our employer was satisfied. Atkins says this, Living as he pleased meant relishing to the full and enjoyable but but exploitive lifestyle. Newton soon grew hard to the gruesome operations of slave hunting, capturing, buying, and selling. Two of the local vices in which Newton indulged were sexual promiscuity and witchcraft. Newton was a hot-blooded young man who showed his unbridled lust for African women and forced himself on female slaves. 
Newton even got caught up in the charms, necromances, amulets, and divinations of witchcraft and voodoo. And Newton said this about himself at that time, In time, I might have yielded to them whole. When you get to this point, this very, very low level in Newton's life, I I want you to see two things. First of all, for everybody, I want you to see the progressive nature of sin. Remember when we, we, we memorized Psalm 1 together? Blessed is the man who does not walk. And then it progressed. Blessed is the man who does not stand. And finally, blessed is the man who does not sit. No matter what little sin you may be involved with, its design on your life is to grow as big and capture your whole life. And I want to look at young people, maybe particularly young men, who would say to themselves, this couldn't possibly happen to me. I know the catechism. I've memorized the hymns. I know Bible verses. In 14 years, this young boy who could have never imagined this kind of lifestyle, now is a rapist, a drunkard, a blasphemer, And he sells human cargo for his own enjoyment. So you need to look at your life just like I need to look at my life and ask, is there any little sin that has a foothold in my life that spread out over 15 years or 25 years, I could find myself in a place I could have never imagined, which is exactly what happened to John Newton. Three years of living on the coast of Africa and really in a remarkable set of circumstances that I can't go into, Newton was found by a friend of his father's who captained a ship called the Greyhound. He came aboard uh, the land of Africa, found Newton, and tricked Newton into believing that there was a large inheritance for him back in England. And so Newton being interested in the money, also being interested in seeing Polly again, boarded the ship called the Greyhound, and this turned out to be the dramatic turning point for Newton's life. There were two storms that occurred aboard the Greyhound. One was internal, one was external. Internally, since Newton wasn't working on the Greyhound, he was a passenger, he had all kinds of time. And he found himself as somebody who wanted to read, and so he read whatever's aboard. And one of the books that was aboard was a book called The Imitation of Christ. The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. Thomas Akempis was a monk who lived 300 years before Newton. And we don't know exactly what Newton read, but it could have been this. There is no peace in the heart of a worldly man. What we do know is that on the March of uh, the night of March the 9th in 1748, according to Newton himself, he says this, My mind became preoccupied with a disturbing thought. What if these things are true? I shut the book and put an abrupt end to these reflections. 
That was the first storm, the internal storm, the night of March the 9th. Early in the morning, March the 10th, before the sun came up, Newton woke to this cry. This ship is sinking. In a violent storm, the room began to fill with water. The one he was sleeping in, he ran for the deck. The captain stopped him and asked him to go get a knife. And the man who went up in his place was immediately washed overboard. Newton was assigned to the pumps. And he heard himself say this, If this will not do, the Lord have mercy upon us. And it was the first time Newton began to ask and wonder about the Lord's mercy on his own life. And he says, what mercy can there be for me? Remarkably, the ship survived the storm. It was still a month away from landing in Ireland. And during that month, Newton began to reflect on the need for God's mercy The other book that was aboard the ship was a version of the Bible called the King James Version. Newton began to devour the Bible. He says this, I was struck with several passages, particularly that of the prodigal son in Luke 15. I thought that I had never been so nearly exemplified as by myself. And then the goodness of the father in receiving, nay, in running to meet such a son. And this intended only to illustrate the Lord's goodness in returning to sinners. The the internal storm in Newton's life began to match the external storm around him, and he gave his life to God. Before our ship landed in Ireland, Newton said, I had satisfactory evidence in my own mind of the truth of the gospel I stood in need of an almighty Savior, and such a one I found described in the New Testament. Thus the Lord had wrought a marvelous thing. I was no longer an infidel. I say his conversion was complicated really for two reasons. First of all, sometime later, Newton wrote this about his own life. I was greatly deficient in many respects. I was affected with a sense of my enormous sins. But I was a little I was little aware of the intimate evils of my heart. I had no apprehension of the hidden life of a Christian as it consists in communion with God by Jesus Christ, a continual dependence on him. I acknowledged the Lord's mercy in pardoning what was past. Listen to this carefully. I acknowledged I acknowledged the Lord's mercy in pardoning what was past, but I chiefly depended upon my own resolution to do better for the time to come. I wonder if that is a marker of any Christian life in here. You do trust God for the sins of your past, but you really trust yourself from this point to the future. You're trusting that you're going to get yourself the rest of the way. And Newton found out very quickly that he couldn't get himself the rest of the way. On this very next voyage, Newton says this, Soon after my departure from England, I began to grow slack. I declined fast. By the time I arrived in Africa, I seemed to have forgotten all the Lord's mercy. I was almost as bad as before. I had little desire and no power 
to recover myself. You ever felt that way? You have this genuine experience with the Lord and you know it's not going to change after this point. And very, very quickly you sail off and all the mercies of the Lord begin to drain away because you're depending on yourself. Very interestingly enough, one of the spiritual disciplines that we talked about this summer that Newton employed for himself was fasting. And he did it in this way. He realized as a young man he was hungering after the flesh of young women. And so he decided that once he boarded the ship and saw the mainland disappear, he would no longer eat meat for the rest of the trip. His physical deprivation of eating meat began to help him work on his other desires. And so if you have some desires in your heart that don't seem to be conquered, one of the ways that you can work on that is fasting. That's one of the spiritual disciplines. And Newton had that in his own life. So Newton's conversion seems to take place in stages, which I think most of us can appreciate. And the second reason it was complicated and maybe less complicated for Newton in his time than it is for us hearing about it. But after he trusts in Christ, he's the captain of slave ships for four more years. In fact, off the coast of Africa, waiting for a cargo of men, women, and children, he wrote a hymn. This is what he says. It's a hymn that's sung many times. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows and heals his wounds and drives away his fear. It makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled breast. Tis manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. And he writes that as he stacks 300 men, women, and children on his boat. So it's complicated. When you look at a life, it's complicated. His conversion is complicated. It would be 25 more years before Newton's heart began to stir over the inconsistencies of what he saw in the slave trade. And most of you know the story about he and William Wilberforce. Finally, in Newton's ministry, my last couple of points here. Newton returns, 1750, gets married. He tries for seven years to become a pastor in the Church of England, finally gets in. He's accepted by a small church in Olney, England. A number of things highlight his ministry, and um, we could talk a lot about them, but I just want to mention two. One, the grace that he experienced had an effect in every area of his life in two ways that I thought were fairly interesting or very interesting, was on his theology and on his relationships. The grace that Newton experienced had an effect on his theology in this way. Newton had become a friend of John Wesley, an Arminian preacher, and George Whitfield, a Calvinist preacher, both part of the Great Awakening, both great men of faith. Both pre- preachers had a tremendous impact in, uh, in Newton's life, and Newton had a, a large respect for both. But Newton, although he admired Wesley, embraced the Calvinistic views of George Whitfield. In fact, he spent so much time around George Whitfield, he became, uh, he, his nickname became, he's the little Whitfield. 
And I want you to listen to Newton's approach to his Calvinistic theology. The views I have received of the doctrines of grace, or Calvinism, are essential to my peace. I could not live life comfortably a day or an hour without them. However, Newton cared more about his influencing people rather than winning debates. So listen to Newton's own description over a cup of tea with a friend. I am more a Calvinist than anything else, but I use my Calvinism in my writings and in my preaching as I use the sugar. Taking a lump and putting it into his teacup and stirring it, he said to his friend, I do not give it alone and whole, but mixed up and diluted. He understood the doctrines of grace were like the little lump of sugar and people couldn't take the lump as a whole, but it had to be permeated through, not diluted in terms of not being strong, but it had to be seen through the life of everything that the preacher did. And so very rarely did he take those doctrines out and give them as a whole. He gave them through the whole life of his preaching and his life. Secondly, in his relationships and finally... God's grace made Newton a very patient and humble minister, of which I think we can learn something from. In regards to his patience, Newton says this, Professors who own the doctrines of free grace often act inconsistently with their own principle when they are angry at the defects of others. A company of travelers falls into a pit. One of them gets a passenger to draw him out. Now, he should not be angry with the rest for falling in. He did not pull himself out. A man truly illuminated will no more despise others than blind Bartimaeus after his own eyes were opened would take a stick and beat every blind man he saw. You see what happens there? He understands that he's received this great grace. But as he goes back and he looks at the defects of others, he doesn't look at their defects. He doesn't beat them because they can't see. He tries to become the passerby that helps the people out of the pit. And in regards to his humility, Newton wrote this in a letter to his friend. A believer feels his own weakness and unworthiness and lives upon the grace and pardoning love of the Lord. This gives him a a habitual tenderness, humbled under a sense of much forgiveness himself, and this is the important part, he finds it easy to forgive others. A due sense of what he is in the sight of the Lord preserves him from giving way to anger and resentment. He is not easily provoked. As Jesus is his life and righteousness and strength, so he is his pattern. On December 21, 1807, John Newton died at 82 years old. One of his last statements, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. And Newton wrote his own words on his gravestone, saying this, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith 
he long labored to destroy. So when you see the life of somebody like John Newton, and you know your sin. I hope you know it. You have things you never want anybody to know. Grace flows to that point. The arm of the Lord is not too short to save. His ear is not too dull to hear. And once you get in touch with that grace, the kind of person it makes you is tender. Let's pray. Lord, we stand on people's shoulders, most of whom we don't know. Some, like our parents or friends, we know, but people like John Newton, who have given us so much in his writings, much of what he has given us is his own depravity. And I admit that if I ran into a John Newton at 20, and not the John Newton at 40, I might think all hope was lost for that young man. We thank you for your grace that flows to the very lowest point and always has that scent of scandal about it, not only into the lives of people like John Newton, but into the life of Paul Phillips. That as we sing in a few minutes the closing song, we are wretches. It's not just John Newton, and we have a great Savior. Lord, thank you for what you've given us both the richness and history, your word, people's lives, and our finances. And I pray that we give our lives back in a way that really is God-glorifying and that generations to come would stand on our shoulders and proclaim the greatness of God Almighty. In Jesus' name, amen.